it is an overwhelming thing just to, to hear you all in the room. The organ played for the first time in six months and, and kind of liturgy just said and sung. It, it's a really quite strange and powerful experience and, and I'm really glad uh, that we're together in the room. Let's turn to James wherever we are and we're still in chapter one. Week two of the series on James. Annoying we couldn't start this indoor service at the same time. It would have had better symmetry, but I think the Lord knows what he's doing. James is not a very codified or sort of methodical kind of a book. You need to know that as we we dive through it. And sometimes it feels to me as I prepare these sermons on James uh, as though he loaded all of his theological arguments into a washing machine and just pressed fast spin. It's a all over the place, really, but he makes one simple and one central point, and that is that we need a working faith. So think of this book uh, as like a set of illustrations or examples of this central point. There are just numerous applicatory remarks to get you thinking about your faith and asking if it works. For example, verse 19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Do you want to know if your faith works? Well, look at the way in which you speak and look at the way in which you treat other people. It's a very, very Christian idea, is it not? And how many times have you fired off uh, an email or you've put something on Facebook, for example, and then done this in the heat of the moment and wished that you could take it back? And maybe you've slept on an email and sent a nicer version of it in the morning and still woken up the day after the day after and thought, hmm, could have done it better still. The idea of being slow to anger is an attribute of God. It's what God is like with us when we mess up. And the good news is that as our faith in God grows, our likeness to God grows, and we get this patience like he has. One of my favorite things that Kat will say to the kids when they've trashed something is that they are blessed that she has the Holy Spirit. Because she says, this patience that I have right now, she says, is not natural. All right? The fact that she's not taking their heads off is evidence that the Spirit is real and alive inside of her. Patience is a really difficult thing. In no way is godly patience something that we can just work up or generate ourselves. As humans, every single one of us has a limit And because we're surrounded by humans that have been rewired by the fall to find that limit, many of us will find that we blow up at some point or another. But I keep saying to you that James is a practical guy, so he makes a practical point. Verse 20. Let's just think for a minute about anger, what it does and why we feel it. He says, For the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God, meaning your anger is not going to make them any holier. It doesn't work. You cannot rage someone into godliness. You might influence their behavior for a little while or make them go away, and that's nice. It's a relief. But fundamentally, your anger cannot change who they are. In fact, there's nothing you can do to change who they are. That is for God. If someone is winding you up, If someone is being really ungodly, there is an explanation for that. They're ungodly. (laughs) 
It's not on you to fix that. Broken people break people. There's only one way for them to be fixed. It is the exact same way that we got fixed, and it is through receiving the grace of Jesus Christ. Hence, the call here to offer grace. James says, verse 21, receive. It's a gift. With meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We're saved by grace. Let's be humble about that. And I love the the idea of of the implanted word. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the truth. All euphemisms for the same idea. We're talking about Christ dying on the cross, being buried, rising from the dead, ascending and sitting on that throne where he intercedes for us, having paid for our sins and having given us his identity, washing us clean, the gospel, all of it. This message of the gospel, the word of truth, is implanted within. Faith in the gospel is like a medical device inside of you, like an insulin pump or a pacemaker something like that inside of you that, that, that gives you life and keeps you alive. It's implanted, it's active, it's working inside of you. Maybe uh, you, you, know, you don't even know it's there anymore. But if you wear a device like that, you know how important it is. The gospel that saved you is the gospel that will change you when it's working inside of you. Key verse, verse 22. Verse 22, key really to the whole letter of James in the washing machine of James's argument, this is the red sock in a white load that influences everything else in there. He says, verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. To hear the gospel, which many do, but to do nothing with it is not to receive it. To hear the gospel and do nothing with it is to reject the gospel. You've got to do something with it when you've got it. Uh, This year, the vestry was uh, working on the definition of membership of this church, and uh, it's something that's been very long overdue, defining what a member is, and what they came up with is really good. I'll share it with you. It's simple, biblical, and clear. A member is a believer who commits, connects, and contributes. Commits, connects, contributes. Do you see here how they're linking faith, belief, with what we do. It's a very biblical concept. Commits. This is about what you believe. That I believe in God. I believe that he loves me. I believe in grace. I believe that his son died for me. I believe that we're saved by that grace. And I believe the Bible when it tells me that this is true. Connects. That means you come. Which is a bit awkward during a pandemic. I think we actually finished writing this about a week before we closed the church. But Ordinarily, you come, and uh, that means that you know people in the church and are known by them. If you've been a member of this church for 15 years and someone introduces themselves to you as though you're new, perhaps you're not a member. Contributes. It's about giving, it's about serving or being served, because there are times in our lives when God calls us to help others, there are times when we need the help. But that's what this connection and contribution is all about, commits, connects, contributes, a biblical idea of faith. Now, I read from one of my predecessors that in the heyday of this church, over 300 people came each week. In the room, we have about 20 right now. But on the books, there were a 1,000 people and more who claimed that they belonged to this church. 
And four of my predecessors left distraught at what those numbers revealed. How could it be, they reasoned, every single one of them, that week in, week out, more of the people that claim that they belong here avoid the place than come? It doesn't make any sense. James warns us there can be only one explanation for this. Verse 22, they were deceiving themselves. A passive faith is not a faith. It's only a faith if it works. If I joined a golf club and I bought a golf shirt and I read golf magazines and I watched golf on TV and I even bought a set of embroidered drinks coasters with pictures of golfers on the top and a matching embroidered belt and a matching embroidered card holder. Don't know why golfists like embroidery so much, but it's a side point. I don't want you to be distracted by it. If I never ever hit a ball in my life, could I legitimately claim to be a golfer, do you think? You know, it'd be a ridiculous claim, wouldn't it? All that stuff wouldn't make me a golfer. If I actually picked up a club, I would just miss the ball or take out half of the green thing that it sits on, wouldn't I? Because I don't know what I'm doing. Now, I am actually a member of a golf club. I only go because of the duck fries. They're really good. But, uh, you know, I, this is not a golfer. Someone who reads about it watches it. That's not a golfer. I would be self-deceived, would I not? James continues with this motif For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Hearing and not doing is such a self-deception that it's like you don't even know who you are. Like like someone who looks in the mirror and, and just forgets what the face looks like. You don't even know your own face. You don't even know your own body. What an extraordinary thing. Now, I actually once jumped out of the shower screaming because I thought my own armpit hair was a spider. And it was embarrassing. But, you know, when you think about the seriousness of the self-deception here, it's not embarrassing. It's deadly, isn't it? That you could think that you are a faithful Christian and not be one. Now, you can only be saved, we know this, by receiving the word. And if you hear it and you don't do it, then you've not received it, and therefore you're not saved. So one of the greatest tragedies to me in the West is the number of people content to hold that kind of a faith. And James says in verse 26, that person's religion is worthless. And that's a rude phrase. But there's actually rudeness within the rudeness. The, uh, the word religion is a bit of a slap in the face, actually. It's not a great word, religion, this, this word in Greek. It's uh, rarely used. It's not really Christian. It's, it's derived from the word fear or troubled. Uh, and it's a, a word that was used in, in other pagan religious settings to describe anything ritualistic or, or ceremonial. It was any kind of activity to do with any kind of a God whatsoever, and and not just the true God, not just the Lord. In fact, more often, not God. And uh, this is telling us that you can do an awful lot of religious and and churchy activity and stuff 
And it will be of no value at all whatsoever to you if that's where it ends. Coming in and out and doing things does not save you. Jesus does. Because he loves you. The power is in Jesus, not in, I don't know, the carpet or the candles. So to close this letter in James's, uh, this chapter in James's washing machine style, like this is the most coherent I can be. So if you think the sermon's all over the place, blame the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he knows what he's doing. Some letters need to be technical and codified. Some are more artistic and, and exciting. That's what James is. It's good. Uh, we've got three more examples at the end of this chapter uh, of this working faith idea and uh, sort of one positive, one negative, one somewhere in between. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious, there's a clue, right? Thinks he is <laughs> means they're not. Uh, example number one. And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So we're right back to where we started, and he'll come back to it in chapter 3 as well, this idea of speech. If your runs wild out there, then there is something wrong in here. Uh, Jesus says the same stuff in Luke 6.45, out of the heart the mouth speaks. If you just go around tearing people down and grumbling and complaining and criticizing and bickering and breaking, that is not an oral health problem. It's a heart disease. And a mask isn't going to help us, is it? Example number two, a bit more positive. What does pure religion look like? What does a true one, not a fake religion, but what does real faith look like? Verse 27. Well, Let's push it even further. What does the perfect church service look like, according to God? Verse 27, he says, this is the perfect church service imaginable. To visit orphans and widows. Church is not in our room. It's in theirs. Orphans and, and widows are themselves examples within this example of what James is, is talking about. They represent anybody disadvantaged, anybody oppressed and trapped. What they had in common in their day was their inability to save themselves. Poverty, lack of a way out. And James says to us, true religion, a working faith, the perfect church service, is, is to go and visit them in, underline the word in, their affliction. Now, the word affliction means a trap. That's what it means. It means pressure or a burden. The word affliction, second favorite word in the whole Bible, is literally uh, the word for an olive press, a barrel with a screw-down lid that will be screwed down onto the olives inside under pressure, squeezing out all of the oil. And uh, I think there's, th that's an image of what it is like to be trapped by something. There's something really good about coming alongside a person when they're suffering, getting into the mess of the press with them. There's something good when Christians do this. I love seeing our church do this more and more. It's really good. Our church is doing this. Urban Impact, Uncommon Ground, Shepherd's Heart and Kairos are the absolute essence of, of, of what this verse is all about. Those are the perfect church services. They're our major mission partners. Impoverished communities, two of them, a veteran's shelter and a jail. I mean, yeah, 
that's where we should be. Isn't it wonderful that we are? Now, we now actually have over 20 people regularly involved in those very places, which is just so cool. Uh, but God has given us, first and foremost, to this town. And there's a mission field in Fox Chapel that I think sometimes gets overlooked because it's nice here. But they still need Jesus. You know, topiary is not a substitute for Jesus. <laughs> uh, beautiful though our town is. And I, I actually think it's one of the nicest places to live on earth. Fox Chapel has its burdens, has its traps, has its version of the, the olive press, does it not? One of the most difficult things that people would deal with in Fox Chapel because of our material possessions and, and power and skills is what if you fail? The fear of failure is enormous. The shame of failure is even bigger still. If something goes wrong in Fox Chapel, it's, it's a horrible trap to be in. And uh, this, I think, is what's driving up the levels of addiction and levels of depression in our town. This sense of, well, if I've got all of this advantage and I still failed, then maybe I'm no good. And especially our older teens are, are actually stuck in the trap of success. This has been a kind of downer this sermon. Um, you know, it's bad for you, it's bad for me. I'm, I'm preaching it three times. But the, the good news, yay, the good news is that God has put a church here. That's the good news. Not to show off our rituals and our religion and our carpet, but to, not to add more pressure to people, you know. Oh, you're wearing that to church, are you? So you're going to fail church as well, are you? Like, no, that's not why God has put us here. God has put us here to preach grace. God has placed us in Fox Chapel to preach grace. Now, give me that kind of a church over a church of a thousand any day. Our church, in a biblical way, is becoming more religious. Isn't it? What did Pastor talk about today? Grace. Like, cut and paste that until I die. Last of all, example number three. What is true faith? What is true religion? What is biblical church? What is the perfect church service? To keep oneself, he says, unstained from the world. That's a bizarre little phrase, isn't it? But a warning, really, um, in that washing machine image. There's something in there that's infecting the load that you don't want. And I think the warning is this, that as the world becomes uh, less and less interested in church, as faith becomes less and less important to the world, as the church collapses, uh, many churches are panicking and saying, well, how can we keep going? And what they're doing is they're aping the world instead of shaping the world, just joining in with the latest campaign, and hopefully that'll bring them in. And uh, the problem is that sometimes what the world thinks is good is not what God thinks is good. Sometimes the secular agenda will match very well with God's, and when it does, let's help. But sometimes it will not, and secular do-gooding is never going to be a substitute for a working faith. In fact, often James says here, this is a shocking idea, that uh, what the world campaigns for as good is so evil in the sight of the Lord that it defiles us. Don't be evangelized and discipled by the world. Change the world, is what James says. In a broken world, 
which this is. We're not called to shout at it to make it more godly. We're called to have a working faith. That means going into the world and loving people. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for for the artistic and exciting nature of of this letter of James and uh, its myriad examples. I just pray, God, that uh, as we enjoy this letter, you'd be doing a work within us, that, that, that your word would be implanted. And maybe, God, there's so many aspects of the Christian faith that we don't understand. And I thank you, God, that in your perfect infinity, we can never fully comprehend you this side of eternity. I thank you, God, that, that, that there's not some thing I'm striving for at the age of 50 to know you perfectly and have it all sorted. Thank you, God, that I can never get there. And thank you, God, for your grace in bringing me to yourself. And, and I pray that, God, for our congregation online in this room, that we would just draw nearer to you right now. And God, would you move through this place through your Holy Spirit, giving us grace, forgiving us, and empowering us, we pray, to have a working faith. Amen.